Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness. Conversations on race with everyday people. Your host, Sima Lieberman. Woo! Woo! Hey, Hi, everyone. We will be with you in a minute. I am setting up for my. I'm setting up for my guests, and uh, we're using a special kind of software. You'll find out why in a little while. And uh, just sit tight for a minute. Yeah, we're going to play some music for you. Hi, Deb Daggett, can you hear me? Okay. Deb. Yes, I'm finally in it to be Deb? able to get uh, the new link. Oh, wait, now, I can't hear her, so I have to turn up too, right? Right. You're, well, she can turn up too, and okay. the only way for her to hear her is to be talking through there right now. To, through here? Yeah, because otherwise... Hi, hi Deb. Yes, I can hear I'm, you. Can you hear me? But I'm not hearing anybody because... Uh, of the music, I guess. No, there's no music. It's your headphones. You must not plug oh, oh, we unplugged the headphones. Pair. Duh. Um, you have to put the headphones in here. We unplugged them. There you go. Okay. Okay. Deb or Steve? Yes. Can you hear Hi. Me? No. I can hear We're waiting for Steve. All right. Can you hear me? Okay. I hear you perfectly. Okay. I mean, worst case scenario, I guess we'll just have Steve call in, and he could be on the telephone. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, that'll work. It'll be a little odd, but it will be cool because be we do what we need to do. Does he, not, does he have the number? No, I don't have the number yet. I'll have to oh, get it. It's okay. right here. All right. So um, I'm going to call Steve again, okay? And I'll play some music in the interim so you have to say goodbye you're, to your You're going to hear music, all right? Okay. Hi. Hi, Hi, Steve. Hey, hi. I'm going to start. I'm going to, I'm going to get started. I'm going to press record. And Can you hear yet, Lee? I'm actually going to grab a, a, pen, a pen. Can you hear? No. Uh, yes. Yeah. Steve, are you there? Sorry Steve. for the delay, folks. <laughs> hey, don't worry. Listen, I'm new at this. So, um, you know, I wish I could well, be. Here. It's, I, I, I'm, it's I'm rather interesting that. It's rather interesting. We're uh, talking about race and disability, and um, I think Squadcast is not designed for accessibility. <laughs> well, I am going to send a note because they want to know. So, and you could be there. They should hire you to be their consultant, actually. No, they're not going to hire me. They'll hire my man here, Lee They'll Steinbrenner. Hire Lee, but you could tell. You could be the user for UX for user experience. Oh, I see. Okay. I see. All right. I'm going to get started. I'm going to turn my record on in in about ten seconds. Right. Okay. Five, okay. four, three. 
Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together to have open cross-race conversations on race and bring race to the people. If you like what you hear today, please go to www.raceconvo.com, www.raceconvo.com, and download more episodes. And if you really like what you hear today, then share our message with all your friends, colleagues, and everybody in the world that you know and on your social media. If you have ever wanted to talk about race but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or afraid of not being heard or trivialized, then this podcast is for you. My next two guests have been on, I'm very excited about my next two guests. My next two guests have been on the forefront of building diversity, inclusion, and equity in organizations and across the globe. They've been instrumental in bringing disability issues and promoting equality for disabled people to the diversity table for over 25 years. I'm excited to introduce my friends, Deb Daggett and Steve Hannamore. Deb is the former leader of diversity and inclusion for Merck and now CEO of Deb Daggett Diversity. Steve Hanamora is CEO of Hanamora Consulting, an organization that promotes oneness to help people who are different live and work together in harmony. Hi, Steve and Deb. Good morning. For those people who are listening, I don't, some people are listening to it live on, on Martin Luther King Day and other people will be listening to by download. Um, I, since people can't see you, could you describe yourself? Like, I'm a white Jewish woman from the Bronx and a baby boomer. I mean, I live in Berkeley, but you two know me, so you know I'm really from the Bronx. Uh, so could you describe yourself and what you want people to know about you? And anybody can start. Go ahead, Steve. Oh, thank you. Anybody can start. You want me yeah, to start? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the radio. Uh, we can't have too many silences. I mean, some Japanese are okay. I'm Japanese America, born blind in 1944, and if you want a visual, I'm about five six or five seven, and um, I think that's that's pretty explanatory in and of itself. So, thank you. You're five six. You know, so when I'm with you, you always feel so tall to me. I always think you're like about six feet or something. That's because you have such a big presence in my life. Well, thank you, Sam. Well, there's a funny story about that, but I'll wait and tell you about that after Deb gets okay. introduced herself. Go ahead, Deb. Steve, you left out that you're a runner. Well, we can talk about that, yes. That's a key part of your identity as well. Uh, so, Deb Daggett, originally from uh, California, born in San Francisco, have lived in New Jersey since 2001, uh, white. Uh, female cisgender. Um, I uh, identify as an ally. Um, I am a little person uh, at four feet two, and have multiple apparent and non-apparent disabilities. Um, and so, my primary identity is as a um, woman with a disability. Thank you. And I'm going to ask each of of you. Why do you think we need to talk about race? And why is race important to you personally? And whoever wants to start could go ahead. Because we're remote, uh, I, maybe, maybe I, I could ask you directly if that makes it easier, since you can, nobody could see me or feel me or feel my presence. So 
I'm going to say, Deb, start out. Do you think we need sure. to talk about so, race? Why is it important to you personally? I think early on in my career, it was important because most of my mentors were uh, of African heritage and were strong allies and coaches um, to me when I was learning uh, my trade, if you will, as a DNI inclusion um, uh, practitioner. And so um, as a result of that, um, I felt a strong desire to learn how to be an authentic and effective ally for people of color and to reciprocate the many gifts that I was receiving. Um, that started uh, when I was in high school. I was the only person in my uh, high school who identified as having a disability. And in Oregon at the time, there were only a handful of people of color. So those were... Um, my student peers who um, really helped me a lot in overcoming uh, physical obstacles and social isolation. The same was true um, on the college campus I went to. Again, I was an N of one and the people that were very um, loving and caring and helpful to me were people of color um, of different races. And then that just accelerated and amplified throughout my career, starting with uh, my very first jobs out of college. Thank oh, wait a minute. Steve, did yeah. you know that, that Deb, I didn't know that you lived in Oregon. I, I did. I, for a while, I went to high school and college in Oregon. Uh, Where? Where? Salem High, uh, high School and Oregon State University for college. Oh, no. I never knew that, Deb. And the fact that you're a beaver makes us enemies. That's right. You're, you're a duck, right? Yeah, that's right. Wow. A duck and a wildcat. A duck and a wildcat. Linfield wildcat. Salem, you would have had Willamette bearcats. So yeah. I guess we I guess we can't be friends anymore. We're going to be frenemies. <laughs> well, I didn't know. we. I mean, I knew Steve and I knew each other sort of in Oregon. But Deb, now you're a part of our crew. That's right. I'm I am an Oregonian. Yep. But I'm really from <laughs> the Bronx. Great. But but I lived in Oregon a long time. So Steve, uh, what about you? Why well, is it important to talk for you to talk about race personally and should we be talking about it? Well, the race thing is uh, really personal. Um, my family lived in California but were sent to Arizona during the World War II. And I came into the world, my parents, my, the camp was so bad that my dad left Arizona and found work in Colorado. And when mom was pregnant with me, about ready to deliver, the doctor said, I do not deliver Japs past midnight. So I was a force of delivery about 12.01 or something like that on February 20th, 1944. So that was the beginning of race conversation before I even knew there was such a thing. And uh, mom was so distraught that she couldn't even think about a Japanese middle name to give me. So I have become Stephen Paul Hanamura because it was just hard to think about that. So and it was all the Japanese related as far as what they were experiencing at the time. So blindness didn't come into the picture till later. I'm not sure whether it was in Colorado. They moved to Philadelphia and I was supposed to enter, enter the Overbrook School for the Blind, but they moved back to California. And in those days, uh, you did not go to a public school if you were a, a blind person. So I came to school in Berkeley, but my parents lived east of Los Angeles. So race and disability were alive and well 
very early and even before i came out let me just say it that way came out meaning out of mom's stomach <laughs> you know for people who you mentioned the camp and where you were born uh, for people who don't know because i have all kinds of listeners in all ages would you just briefly say what you were talking about well, uh, these, let's go back to the, the really the race then, if we're going to do it that way, started for me December 7th, 1941. I wasn't born yet, but the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And what that did was create a fear in the West, on the West Coast for anybody who was of Japanese American descent. So the second generation Japanese Americans who lived on the West Coast were taken up, and I don't, I don't even know how many internment camps there were formed. I think there were nine or ten of them, and the one we were uh, affiliated with was in Poston, Arizona. And there's some movies out about Japanese Americans. Up there's a camp in uh, Washington that occurred, that started that process. So what that did was Japanese people were very scary. It was, uh, uh, well, let me just divert a little bit i think right now african-americans if or if you're black it's not just that you're african-american are the scariest people that people are afraid of well at that time japanese people were the scary people and so we, we took a lot of hits i was shielded because i was at the blind school so uh, i stayed i only saw my family twice a year since the age of four and a half but my brother and my mom and dad took a lot of heat and then when I got to high school, I started experiencing, I didn't know, is it because of my blindness or because I'm Japanese that I'm experiencing prejudice and discrimination? And I couldn't always tell which is which. However, fast forward to 1985, I was telling a woman this story that I, that I knew. I said, I don't know if I'm discriminated because you're, I'm blind or Japanese. And she said, there's a third reason. Would you like to get some feedback? And I said, sure, bring it on. She said, that's because you're a jerk. <laughs> And so, <laughs> so it was, she was doing it in good humor, but so it was blindness, Japanese, or jerk. Pick, take your pick. And I didn't always know which one I was being maligned by. So that's kind of the story, a story, part of it. Well, when you told me that you hadn't lived with your parents since you were four and a half, that was pretty intense, I have to say. That that yeah. really impacted me. So yes. how did, now... How does race impact the disability community? Does it impact the disability community? Is there racism in the disability community? Is there different forms of hierarchies in the disability community? I'll ask, okay, Deb. So, um, first of all, I, I just want to acknowledge that for um, individuals that are in Steve and I's generation, I was born in 1959, um, th this is a generation that um, when you had a disability, you were likely to be shipped off. I was as, as well. I spent most of my childhood in long-term care hospitals, um, something that w is unheard of now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just want to acknowledge that that's a generational reality uh, for people with um, a broad range of disabilities. In terms of race, racist plays a really important role, but it's not race alone as an intersection. It's race with class and economics and education status um, and faith. 
So all those different elements come together in order to impact whether or not someone is going to um, develop a disability, whether or not they're going to get the right treatment, whether their disability is going to get worse, whether or not they are going to get access to services and resources, uh, training for employment. So um, it is it is a complicated picture that is also uh, geographic. Um, you know, people in major metropolitan areas um, are going to have more access to resources than those that are in rural areas. Um, communities of color that are in a heavily, uh, heavily farming or manufacturing community are more likely to develop a disability as an adult, acquire a disability as a result of the exposure they have to um, chemicals to the difficulty of the job um, and high injury rates, et cetera. So, um, and, and the last thing I'll say, and then give Steve a chance to comment, um, uh, how disability is viewed is significantly impacted by faith. There are many people who view disability as a manifestation of sin. Um, so in addition to the stigma that already broadly exists for disability, especially mental health and certain other conditions like HIV, there can also be a layer where um, when a person is diagnosed, especially as a child with a disability, um, the family um, hides the person and uh, think uh, talks to them about um, how they are either uh, reincarnated <laughs> and they're, um, they came back as a person with a disability because um, either they did something wrong in their last life or they did something right and they're close to this being the last time around. It depends on whether you think karma is you have to... Um, each time you come back, do something more challenging or is a payback for your last life. I've heard it both ways. Um, but many people think that um, disability can also be as a result of the um, sins of the uh, mother or father and that a disability is visited upon them in, with their child uh, because they made a mistake or did something bad. So there's a lot of shame that can be tied up with faith and on a global basis. And that's why often um, you just don't see people with disabilities. Wow. Steve? Taking off on the shame theme, it was so strong that none of us at the blind school would were willing to admit we were blind. We just couldn't see too well or our vision was impaired. So I did not even say I went, I'm blind until I got into my late 30s or early 40s when I had to come to work for the, I got to work for the Oregon Commission for the Blind, and then they told me, you will be the face of blindness. You have to hit this thing head on. So I had to get orientation training on how to use a cane really good. I'm amazed that we at the blind school are still alive because we wouldn't use our canes, white canes, nor would we even hang on to each other very well. In fact, one of my friends fell into an open utility hole, but by God, we were sighted. We weren't blind or we couldn't see too well. So that's carrying on the shame theme that Deb is alluding to. 
uh, regarding the persons of faith in the sin factor. I think that was there, but uh, I want to introduce the concept of allies, which you most of you know. Mom and dad had white allies, Caucasian men who truthfully, uh, because of uh, two allies, they saved my parents' house when they were interned although it was trashed and they lost all their belongings, but at least many Japanese Americans lost their homes once uh, they were interned. Uh, the fact that you're racially different doesn't necessarily mean that you're not prejudiced towards disability. And so as a, as a uh, person with a disability, I was either amazing or totally helpless, and it didn't matter what color people were as far as how they thought or related to disability. So for me, I don't think it was that much different. The last thing I want to say is there is a, Devin, I'd love your comment on this, but I think there is a disability hierarchy, and the blind groups were the white males of the disability community. Uh, they did a lot of politicking early. We got, we still do, I think, get extra funding than other disability groups. I don't know if that's true, but there was a time when that was true. So that I could have an extra tax exemption being blind, but you may not have the same accessibility as a little person. I don't know if that's true, but it used to be true. Yeah, I, I, I guess uh, just to comment on that, if I may, uh, Sima, um, it depends on how you're looking at the hierarchy. Um, if it is, um, who views themselves as having the greatest challenges, it's actually the reverse. People in the blind community are seen as having the most difficult to deal That's with. That's right. That's right. Uh, because of digital accessibility and, um, you know, just the lack of societal infrastructure to make it easier for blind people to uh, fully participate, especially economically, obtaining and maintaining a job can be very, very difficult. So I'm more helpless than you are, and you have better jobs and capability potential. So therefore, we're at the bottom of the pile, is what I think I hear you saying. Yeah. That, so, yeah. You may have more financial resources in terms of government subsidies and right. advocacy resources. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I think that at the top of the hierarchy, um, oddly, is people in wheelchairs. Yes. And that's yes. because- um, Wheelchairs, yes, I agree. That, that is the image <laughs> that people have of a person in a wheelchair. But having said that, um, at four feet tall, when I was walking with a cane, um, people would say as if it was a huge compliment, I don't think of you as a person with a disability. You're just really short with cool walking sticks. When I started using a wheelchair, no matter what I said to people, they acted like I had one foot in the grave and the other on the battlefield. That's true. Um, and when I wanted to do my own thing and leave the corporate world and go into consulting, working just as many hours doing the same kind of work, they said that I was just being brave and inspirational, but that really I had to leave my corporate job because I became too disabled to work, as was evident in the fact that I now used a wheelchair. So it's just like wild. And my experience of being a wheelchair user, as soon as I needed to start doing that, is I should have used one throughout my whole career. I would have had fewer injuries. I would have been safe. Yeah. it would have been easy my life would have been 
so much better throughout my career, but I had absorbed that same belief system, the medical model of disability. Yes. That if you use the tools that make your life better, then you're more disabled and less able to do, do a, a job or any kind of work. And that's why we wouldn't use the white cane either. For yeah. the same reason, Deb. We had to be acting, sighted acting, even if we couldn't see, because there was too much shame. Uh, and uh, like you say, uh, that's a that's a fascinating uh, parallel. I think you and I could share. We could talk more about that by ourselves later. Well, yeah, yeah, I think the link to Sima on this before we switch subjects is that getting the tools that you need when you really need them like a power chair that goes up and down um take really 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 good health care insurance usually through an employer yeah. and then a lot of advocacy and so you see that um people of color often due to their um, economic situation and health care disparities and um you know, being able to navigate the healthcare system and the insurance industry often struggle to get the latest, greatest tools that will help them. Be before we go away, I, I need to jump to 2019 a minute because what Deb and I are talking about, Sima, are what what it was like in the 50s and 60s and the carryovers. But in 2019, I've got a seven-year-old Down syndrome grandson, and there's a whole different feel now about people with developmental disabilities and autism, they're getting a lot of visibility that we didn't get as a, a wheelchair user or a little person or a blind person. So it doesn't mean the prejudices have gone away. They're still either very special, which is a code for, a lot of people don't like the word special, special ed is code word for that. Yeah. But I want to call that out given the, the age variety that your audience is, that they have no, they have a different sense of what disability is. It's a little bit more visible and at least spoken out loud, but it doesn't mean the prejudices have gone down, but it's out there. So I just want to call that out. Yeah, and also the assumptions, I mean, you were talking about people saying how, like, what, what, what do you, where do you use that? People say, oh, you're inspiring, you know, and I know that that happens a lot with somebody who has some kind of a disability and then they do something like run a marathon or um or dance or i don't know whatever you know you see them on see, see all these videos on youtube and there's also go oh i'm so inspired oh they're so wonderful see that's the way to do it you have to you know your parents have to to raise you like you don't have a disability blah 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 and but then when i hear people talk a lot about black people oftentimes they'll have to let you know well yes she's a very educated black woman or oh she's so powerful oh she's so well spoken so i see a parallel do you see a parallel in that well i can i can respond now to deb i i can call out the running now i've, I've run three marathons i run in a 200 mile relay i'll, I'll be my, doing my last one this year will have been 29 years participating in a race we call hood to coast it's from mount hood to the beach and I've really guarded not trying not to be seen as the inspirational blind runner, although that does happen occasionally, but it doesn't happen as much as it used to. 
but if you do the national media thing it's i'm very inspirational which by the way is not true and i'm also old now so i'm a very slow runner <laughs> uh so now i've got the new new thing called being a senior citizen uh which has its pluses and minuses as well so the i've worked real hard to be i'm a runner and i was actually a pretty good runner i ran, used to run yeah, an eight minute mile up. i ran with you i couldn't keep up yeah uh but 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 you didn't have the inspirational named price tag on you though you see what i mean yeah that, uh, now you might be inspirational because you could be my sighted guide <laughs> that would be inspiring <laughs> <laughs> no i was trying to keep up but so i so i mean it seems to me that there oftentimes there's that you're the special disabled person you're the special right. black person you're the special yes. whatever person as though it's not okay yeah black people are so articulate that's their special you speak you have really good speech patterns you know and that's kind of what they get in in lieu of our in my inspirational thing they get oh you speak so well or you're so inspiring <laughs> articulate so and i wonder, Deb, Deb, I wonder I, if, if, if you hear that too if people go oh she's a little person but she's so powerful yeah i you know inspiration porn is a huge issue in our community that is often talked about these days on social whoa, media whoa, whoa, whoa. inspiration porn okay you got to yeah okay tell us that is a that's a turn of phrase that's come up over the last uh, five to seven years where um you see these stories <clears throat> about a person who identifies as able-bodied being helpful or inclusive to a person with a disability and it makes them um like the cited guide example that steve gave it makes them very special and when it's inspiration porn is when all you learn about the person with the disability is that they have a disability and that they were included in some way you don't know anything about their personality or their other interests or hobbies um or or what they gave back what reciprocally they were giving to the person who included them but it, it makes the person who's being inclusive a hero and and just think about the meaning oh, wow. of that it's kind of like um uh in the in movies like the blind side where sandra bullock's character and her white family are seen as heroes because they help an economically disadvantaged african-american young man uh, who becomes a successful football player um, similarly you see stories of people in the media and movies where um, someone is held up um, as uh, a heroine or hero because they're nice to someone um, with a disability one of the most uh, movies the movies that are most reviled in that whole genre is uh, you before me What's that? where this guy kills himself rather than burden his able-bodied girlfriend with his existence i mean Ugh. that's like the ultimate um like oh yeah there is so little reciprocally that one might have in a relationship with someone with a disability that they should really um, not want to exist so that they're not a burden to other people around them and they're, they're just too many 
memes and YouTube videos and movies that have that. And I, 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 um, I think one book that's out right now that is an interesting intersection of race and disability is um, First Lady Michelle Obama's book. Um, she, um, her father uh, was someone living with um, multiple sclerosis that was progressive. And one of the things it depicts that I have seen in communities of color um, is um, uh, uh, even more um, strong reluctance to mm -hmm. identify as someone with a disability. So as her father um, had had his MS progress, and there were it made it harder and harder for him mobility wise, and he was in more and more pain. He wouldn't even admit to his own family that's right that that's right. he has um, he was having challenges and that there needed to be modifications, whether it was in the home or in his job. And he had a very physical job. And you do hear uh, words in communities of color to refer to a disability without having to come out and say it. Like, for instance, um, there could be a high degree of fatalism. Um, in many communities, especially Native Americans, around diabetes, which is often referred to as the new smallpox because it's been wiping out Native American communities. And there is a fatalism and a turn of phrase as uh, just referring to it as um, their sugar issue instead of calling it an illness um and that once you get it you know it's gonna get you something was no point getting treated um so that is a concern and an issue in many communities of color to um own the disability and manage it and take control over it rather than feel like um there's nothing you can do about it what what i found deb to tag on to that is that the uh, you know the, and I'm going to say black uh, Pr Price Cobbs. Well, we all know Roosevelt Thomas and Price Cobbs, and Price would say black. Because a lot of people, most people, well, probably don't. Diversity consultants, both African American, both black. Roosevelt would say African American, and Price Cobbs would say black. But what I want to say about this is that being black and having a disability, and I'm calling out black specifically. Uh, would sometimes lessen the fear of being afraid of a black person for the, the you're going to do something bad to me. But even within their own community, there was there was pity. There was, you know, like like Deb, you were saying that denial or not wanting to admit that you have a disability. That's not much different. Whether we be white or Asian, you're hiding out from your disability. You're ashamed. You you don't want to admit it. So for some African-American people, it it took away the fear factor, but it didn't necessarily help other because if you're both black and a person with a disability, you really got a problem. You just have nothing going for you. And so uh, I, I have seen that and, and played out in my persons of color friends who are also people with disabilities. So I just want to throw that out there. Well, I want to take a break for a second, and I just want to let people, anybody who's listening, know that we are recording today from Mutiny Radio, which is in San Francisco. And if you are looking for a place to record or do a podcast or a radio show, I encourage you to come down to Mutiny Radio and check us out. I want to ask now, Steve and Deborah, I want to ask you questions about 
race and you know we talk about the disability community i mean is there a disability community sometimes i don't know if it's like a lot of times we talk about people as a community and there's sometimes there's pieces of community but what about racism like within the community or ranks of of, of disabled people because you know oftentimes people want to identify people as other people as just like one identity but we're all a mixture of identities so is there also some kind of a hierarchy around race and disability? Well, I believe that disability is at the bottom of the diversity pile. Um, I think race is the scariest, you know. Well, no, most of our comments, we've been talking about visible dimensions of diversity, meaning the race and vi visible disabilities. So my comments might be a little bit outdated now. There's more attention being paid to the invisible disability but your question has to do with what is there a hierarchy of race yeah, i mean is there, and do, do, do people like say like you as a japanese disabled person or somebody who's a black disabled person or or a native american disabled person don't do they also have to deal with issues like say you're in an organization or you're doing some work around disability issues but then do you also have to deal with issues of race I mean, just because somebody's disabled doesn't mean that they can't be racist. I, I think that's a, a good question, Sima, but it's generational. I think that right. millennials and Gen Z, I think if people identify as having a disability and belonging to an ethnic or racial group, um, I don't think there's as much of a hierarchy. I think Agreed. disability... Yeah. It's kind of an equalizer. I, and to Steve's point, I think it is because it's at the bottom of the totem pole. So um, in some ways, in, in my opinion, I don't have any research to demonstrate this, but if you can be around other people of your uh, racial identity um, and you're a person with a disability, um, at least you have that as a community, because if you're a white person, that white is not a community. Um, unless you live in an enclave like um, an Italian or Polish or Irish community that still really identifies with their ethnic origin and maintain that culture, which you do find those kind of neighborhoods or enclaves in the Northeast. But for most of the country, at least in the U.S., um, having a disability um uh, you know, and being white, you, you really are kind of like a man or woman without um, a, a group to belong to. And so you gravitate towards anybody <clears throat> with a disability, and especially if it's one similar to yours. Um, now, having said that, if you go to a disability-serving social group, <laughs> Whether it's, and, and you can talk about the blind community, um, Steve, but I can speak for people uh, who will identify as little people. Um, if you go to a conference with as many as 2,500 people, almost all the people there are white, yet the incidence 
of being a little person is the same across all countries and races. So I'm not sure what to make of that. The people of color who are there are definitely welcomed and respected. Again, with these newer generations, I can't speak for, you know, the older ones. Um, And the other evidence of inclusion is that it is very common for um, short statured couples to adopt children of color um, from anywhere in the world. Um, And that not being seen as at all um, an issue, unlike the able-bodied average size community where there can be conflict around adopting a child of a different race. Okay. So we're so like less wanted <laughs> that, hey, you know, a, they may be a person from a different race, but at least they found a family and are not being raised in foster homes or an orphanage. So it, it's complex. Now, have either of you had any pushback from people in the district? Because both of you are very involved. I mean, we're all involved in diversity, inclusion, equity, work together. And we all have like, and we're all part of like, I'm all three of us a part of various communities. And we've got our big community of which I consider like a big family, like our multi-culti family. But then we have other, like I, I am also involved like in in Jewish community or LGBT community. Um, have you? Ha- but have you had any pushback from people in the disability community about dealing with issues of race, like where people say, "Hey, you should be dealing just with disability." I mean, I mean, I've, I've, I've had, I've had that for me, and I, you know, I can't separate. So I was just wondering if that's happened to you. Well, I've tried to get um, communities of color to address disability more, like. Um, the NAACP, the Urban League, the historically black colleges. And while they won't come out and say it to me, friends of mine in diversity and inclusion say, Deb, you have to understand they're still dealing with so many issues regarding race that they don't want to tackle disability. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's also potentially um, issues around shame and not wanting to talk about disability, quote unquote, outside the family. But Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I think that the there's so much energy within race that I still have. I'm still prejudiced towards people with disabilities. It doesn't matter whether I'm black or white or Latino. If whatever whatever my upbringing is or my programming is about disability there's still a shame factor so my response would be i I don't see much inclusion around that and then i'm going to contradict myself having just said that generationally with gen y and z they're just they embrace the whole conversation differently and so when you're talking to a, a senior citizen like myself then i've got a bunch of other history and that and Deb, you, you're aware of a lot of that history too. So I think it really at that point it becomes generational in nature. Um, so the answer is yes. There's a lot of it if you're a senior citizen and maybe down through the age of 60 and maybe even 50s. But after that, then the narrative changes. I think and I think it's somewhat dramatic, but I mean that in a good way. I mean uh, uh, we just embrace the whole conversation, younger folks. They're either prejudiced or they're not, or they accept it and they take it on, and, and it's that's great. But in our era, there was a lot more, because there's more jobs that people with disabilities are in, 
and yet there is still this huge gap the least employable or the least possible uh, skill sets or whatever that's still there universally i think well well there's more jobs i mean for certain kinds of disability right i mean is that true across the board well, it's it's not by disability type. It's no. a mistake. Categorically, right? Yeah, to pair the disability with the type of job that that used to happen, um, you know, a long time ago. But now we know that, like James Earl Jones had a severe stutter. Who would have thought that his voice would be, you know, his calling card? Or Tom Cruise has severe dyslexia. Who would have thought he'd been he'd be memorizing scripts? Have so you seen that list of people with disabilities, Deb, that are actors and famous people? Yeah, it's, a, it's an impressive list, actually. Yeah, and there's all kinds yeah. of um, comedians that have chronic depression. So it, it's just not um, a something you would correlate the type of job they'd be good at and the nature of um, what the disability is. But I, I would say that, um, interestingly, moving uh, the, the way that technology is taking over our lives and our jobs in such big ways has been the great equalizer for most people with disabilities except for the blind community because we have got to go back and make sure that every technology that's developed is developed uh, with access, digital access for people who are low vision and blind built into the product because it's really hard to bolt on afterwards. And so I think people who are blind have um, really um, been disadvantaged by most technology although we are starting to see some cool things pop up like um, artificial intelligence where you can wear um, like a visor a la star trek um and um hook it up with a smartphone app and have it tell you how to get around in a location you've never been to before so Maybe there will be a convergence soon, but for quite a while now, I'd say a good 20 years, technology became an equalizer except for the blind community. What do you think about that? Um, well, let me just be real personal here. Even getting onto this podcast, my uh, we would not be on this podcast were it not for my computer consultant who's sitting here in the room. And he said this this particular thing was not designed for people with disabilities and accessibility, but right. he got he got me on here. That's why I'm here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be on this call. So right. that that's I, and I'm not trying to badmouth. I'm trying to tell the truth. No, but if you don't not, know, if people, if, yeah, if we don't, yeah. if you don't know, you can't change something. You, you don't know what you don't know, right? So and it's important um, for people to know that because now I'm going to go back and I'm going to contact <clears> the people who make the software and say, hey, right. you know, you need to do something, or you're going to well, lose but, some business. But, I would concur with everything you said, Deb, about this accessibility thing and for and with the blind community. It's tricky. It's, um, you know, there, there's a there's a consciously and unconsciously a pecking order, a capability level, accessibility levels. It's different for different disabilities. And the way you have alluded to that, Deb, was is spot on, I think. So... Well, there, there's also a pecking order by what um, sector you're in if you mm -hmm. are working. That's true. So, um, the majority of people with disabilities work in government, government. and profit. Mm -hmm. 
um, and if you oddly, if you work in a corporation, you are like the enemy. So if you go to a meeting of the disability community um, to like celebrate the Americans with Disabilities Act or, um, you know, there is some kind of rally to support uh, something that um, people with disabilities would like to see public policy wise, when they find out where you work is in the corporate sector, you're persona non grata. So besides being wow. like, the N of one, uh, you know, you never see people with disabilities when you go to professional conferences. Steve and I, for two decades, the only, <laughs> time, I, the yeah. only time he and I ever saw another person with a disability was when we saw each other. Now, that's not to say <laughs> that there weren't people with non-apparent disabilities in the room, but they weren't owning it or coming up to us and you know support or camaraderie. So we might as well have been the only ones. Well, as long as you're going there, Deb, I want to surface a topic. This I call it the superstar mentality. And uh, in the black culture, they used to say the super N yeah. word. And that stood for the, the one who made it, the one who's out there. And uh, Deb and I, and I want to say this carefully, are probably in an isolated category. Mainly, they, that might be, like you said, there may be more people with disabilities out there in corporate life, but we are the most visible or quite visible of any of the people with disabilities. And that's a good thing and it's not a good thing uh, because it's good that you know we're we're out there and it feels good to be noticed and sometimes complimented but other times it's not because uh we want the it's it's not like that we're not really superstars we're good at what we do uh but because we're the only ones that people see or know then that becomes problematic and i'd, I'd love your comments deb because and please disagree if you do to let go ahead and call it out but it's there's an interesting phenomenon there about how i have to dance with being amazing and co courageous and inspirational and i tell people just ask my wife and she'll give you a whole nother narrative about <laughs> not being amazing and courageous and inspirational yeah <laughs> but my, my husband has a similar reaction yeah i mean uh, you know when i when i do anything at all that involves just showing up and you know doing my job people can't seem to find any other adjective um when you know they greet me they thank you or they want to talk about a speech i gave or a training i conducted but they they feel compelled to say how inspirational i was and and, and it's not a useful adjective because I don't know whether what I did was helpful to them and comparing to other people who might have delivered something similar was, you know, um, I, ha I was at my A game or because of the way I look, because I have a disability, the fact that I do anything at all is it all is by itself inspiring. <laughs> so, Deb, I got, a, I got a dilemma for myself. When I teach leadership, I want to be an inspiring leader. I want to inspire people to do something that they didn't think they could do. So do you have any, have you had any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts about that? Because you and I have to fight the inspirational thing, but at the same time, as a leader, I want to, I want to inspire others. What kind of thoughts are. Well, I've learned, I've learned 
to think about I convert the word to motivate. So if they, if if, if okay, what motivate. I do results oh. in action that would not have otherwise occurred, I can for myself see it as an accomplishment. But also, um, I've embraced something that I rejected for a long, long time. So mm -hmm. when Star Star Wars came out in the seventies, I was in college, mm -hmm. um, just starting college, and. Um, all of a sudden, my nickname became Yoda. Oh, I remember you telling me, yeah. <laughs> Which I initially for many years found extremely Yoda. annoying to be compared to an, an uh, androgynous character yes. that was not very attractive um, that lived like a hermit. But, yeah. you know, over time, I started thinking, wait a minute, um, <clears throat> He's action-oriented, he or she, whatever it is. Um, you know, there is no try, only do. Yeah. Um, and they inspire others. They find the force in other people mm -hmm. and teach them how to use it. So I've embraced my inner Yoda as, you know, now I'm th that I'm this age. And I choose every time someone says I'm inspirational, unless they've got tears streaming down their face, which really annoys me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And unless they're blubbering, I choose to think of it as I'm Yoda, and I have inspired them to use. Very good, more. very good. So and, and that we brings know up some of those people too, like the ones that like they send you. I don't know how many times have I gotten some YouTube video about like somebody in a wheelchair, you know, like dancing with yeah. their wheelchair, <laughs> and oh wow, isn't this amazing? Yes. Yeah, it's kind of exhausting so, to keep on getting. Deb, my Yoda story has to do with music, and uh, I ran from the stereotypes of Stevie Wonder, Jose Feliciano, and Ray Charles. And for the younger generation, those were all blind singers. But I loved to sing, and I gave away. I, I ran from singing for a long time, and then I joined in two choirs. Uh, as fact, that's why I came to Oregon to join the a cappella choir for Linfield, but the director wouldn't let me do it because I'd be a burden to people on choir tour. Wow. And, and it took 25 students out of the 40 students to go lobby on my behalf the next, you gotta let this guy in. Um, but I, it took a long time. I ran from singing and then I ended up being in a backup group for Barry Manilow. And what? it came to, it came to sing. And they didn't want me, the, the director, the producer wouldn't let me go on stage. And I've, I advocated for myself and held up the whole process until I talked him into, look, I'm going on, whether you want me or not, I'm going to be on that stage. And I had to self lobby for that. Wow. Um, so I've, I've but I, with that, which I ran from, which I was actually pretty good at it, was in a folk group. We auditioned for a, another TV show at CBS called the Art, Art Linkletter Show. We did not get on. But I was uh, one of four singers, and we went down there to Hollywood right after graduation. And so I've, this, this Yoda, you've got to embrace what you are gifted at and still do it. I uh, used to sing in church choirs. We don't do that much anymore, but I love to sing. And I was a pretty good bass. You know, we could hit a low C, and, and people would love that. And so you have to embrace the Yoda thing you're talking about, I guess. Yep. <laughs> I'm out of that. Yep. <laughs> I, I want to ask another question because I'm looking at the time. Right, it's almost time, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I told you, I told you that this hour goes fast. People mm. say, "How could you do an hour?" No, I, I know it's going to go fast because I've got like about twenty other questions that I wanted to ask, but that'll be for a whole 
other show. Yeah. But I'm thinking about like in the diversity world or in the diversity inclusion community, so to speak. I think, I mean, it seems to me that, and I could be wrong, but in many ways, it's almost been like a struggle for disability to be included at the diversity table, Mm -hmm. just like for a long time, it was a struggle to get LGBT. So I'm wondering if you experienced that and also, Deb, as a white person, what has been your experience? Steve, why don't you go first? Um, the answer is yes and no. The, the answer to that question is yes, it's a struggle for me. And this I mean, is, I'm going to say it. Yeah. Because I've elevated to becoming a superstar. Yeah. And I wouldn't. Do you see what I'm getting at? In other yeah, words, yeah. No, I know. I, I, I know. It, it, it's I stand out, and I've worked hard to make myself stand out because I believed in it enough. But yes, as a general conversation, I think the answer is yes. It is still difficult for people with disabilities to be taken seriously in the diversity conversation as a whole. I, I still believe that. And the re- my answer to that, though, is why, why shouldn't it? Because I, if I'm prejudiced, I'm prejudiced. If I'm scared, I'm scared. And every, most, I'm, I'm going to over-exaggerate. Everybody's scared of disability. We don't know what to do. It's awkward. And so, therefore, it is isolated from the other disability groups, of diversity groups, although we're saying the words now, okay? We can say the words. It's included that way. But behaviorally, it's still a huge gap for people with disabilities to be taken seriously, to be hired, to be coached, to be mentored up, unless you have that super stark uh, attribute. Yeah, yeah I, I guess what I would say is throughout my career, um, it was really hard to get disability included. And, yeah. and mm. I had to do it behind the scenes and yep. I could not be seen as the advocate. So similar to a person of color, um, not being seen as the voice for quote unquote their people mm-hmm. um, and and how hard that's been, especially for African American women in DNI roles yes. where they had to be so cautious. Um, at the same time, I acknowledge that uh, my career was significantly accelerated because there were African-American men and women primarily, uh, some some uh, Latino as well, who early on when I was learning how to do this work always included me, even yes. though I didn't know anything because yep. I was a person with a disability. So within the DNI community, I got more than my fair share of opportunities to be at the front of the room and to shine because I was the N of one in the broader conversation of influencing diversity and inclusion. I was not allowed until very recently to advocate on behalf of my uh, own community in any kind of a visible way and was chastised if I did that. Um, And I also was not able um, in some of the uh, internal roles I played to get the accommodations that I needed. Um, I, you know, it was considered um, problematic 
quick and costly if I needed, for instance, my husband to travel with me um, once I became a wheelchair user. So I know we need to end now. I see it's uh, at the end of our time, but that's uh, that's a Pandora of uh, topics. Yep. The black community lobbied on my behalf a lot, or African-American people, but I would concur with everything Deb has said as far as disability. And uh, sometimes we've experienced, or I've experienced even being isolated from the disability group, but that was not anybody's fault. And, but now it's, the gap is closing, so. But wouldn't you say, I mean, I, it seems to me that the black civil rights movement inspired so many other people to demand yes. also civil yeah. rights. That's true. Well, and for disability, LGBTQ being um, 15, 20 years ahead has really been the game changer. Um, the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce helped us to form the Disability-Owned Business Enterprise Certification. Mm -hmm. The Corporate Equality Index helped us develop the Disability Equality Index. I mean, we really have the LGBTQ community to thank for showing us how uh, we could be included and that has leapfrogged us and accelerated inclusion, um, especially since by both three passed um, in 2014. And there's now um, aspirational affirmative goals in the corporations for hiring people with disabilities. Well, I really want to thank you both, Steve Hanamora and Deb Daggett, for being on my show. I mean, I, I would love to have you both on another time if you'd like to come back because there's still so much to talk about. And I'm so glad that I have both of you as, as my friend. Uh, actually, Deb, I got to tell you this. Is it okay if I tell Deb what we've been saying, Steve? Sure. That, I don't know what you're going to say, well, but I okay. guess it's okay. <laughs> we were saying that when we first, you know, we met you around the same time. And Steve says, and she's is way ahead of both of us now. Yeah, you've passed us, right. Yeah, that's true. I would agree with that, Deb. You've passed us both. <laughs> so, to, I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> last, I'm going to ask you both last remarks and how can people reach you? If they want to contact you for speaking, consulting, uh, questions, how can they reach you? So, Deb, go ahead. Uh, so I don't really have anything more to add. It's, it's been a very rich conversation. I guess I want to just honor uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. since we're recording this um, on his um, celebration, not his actual birthday, but on the celebration. And um, I can't think of anything better uh, that I could do today in honor of his memory than to have this conversation with the two of you. If people need to reach me, um, the best thing to do is send me an email at debdaggett at gmail.com. And um, they're just Daggett. I think my husband made up the last name. I never run into anybody else. D-A-G-I-T. So uh, anyway, you, you, you're welcome to uh, contact me that way if, if there's anything I can do to be a resource. Steve? Uh, Hanamura Consulting, H-A-N-A-M-U-R-A -A Consulting. And it's on, it's, there's a, we have a website, or you can reach us at sh at Consulting dot com and we'd be happy to serve whoever wants to reach out and, and likewise dr king a very uh, important person is rather fascinating that we're getting to do that record this on his day 
celebrate commemorating his efforts in the civil rights movement and uh, thank you both and thank you and, and i want to say that everything started for me what are like by my life in this kind of work, I would I would say, uh, officially started when I went on the March on Washington in 1963 and heard the I Have a Dream speech. But that day, I was too young to really remember it exactly. But that day changed my life, so I'm forever grateful. This is Sima, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. I'm going, getting ready to sign off. Go to www.raceconvo.com to hear more episodes and help us get the message of eliminating fear of differences and bring people together by sharing this podcast with everyone you know who wants to stop hate and spread love. You can reach me at Sima at SimaLieberman.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at The Inclusionist. And invite me to speak at your next conference, meeting, or event. Signing off until next time, Sima the Inclusionist. Hey, thank you so much. Oh, I for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls, trivia on Mondays, taco Tuesdays. 
First Wednesday, live jazz. Live DJs Thursday. Parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Benders is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Benders Bar and Grill. Hi, 
Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips, don't. (laughs) know anything about it sorry all on my limited view yes every tuesday from 12 to 2 uh oh you can if you can also find us on apple Podcasts. oh yeah and google play and stitcher itunes oh you already said that tune in radio uh stitcher you said that spotify oh my god there's just so many and overcast um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That, that kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard, as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I used to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be... Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even going to be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four ninety nine.
It's that time of year again, March 1st through 5th. It's time for the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, five days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, five days. Amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain you with 25 differently themed shows hosted by local San Francisco comedians bringing you comedians from all over the United States here. Everything will be live, live streaming and podcast post. Get your tickets, $10 a show, 25 shows, a million laughs. It's the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders, Counter Offer and Subliminal SF. But you know all I get is the same thing so kindly. Mister. Mm-hmm. Some change of your mind Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it's a cash conk, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plastic, vinyl, records, round, played, mixed, all for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scott Walker, amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast, that is flat black plastic. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. .fm. From there, you can captain. I have wit. Not funny, but comedy day will be. A guarantee. Yeah, anyway. Thank you for turning into an old episode of Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. Simma Lieberman can't be here today, but her show will be. We're going to play an old episode from uh, You're listening to Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People with Simma Lieberman here on MutinyRadio.fm as she is looking for another song to play for you guys were that was just from her guest who's going to be here and we're trying to negotiate the dead air we're not having dead air here there's always something to talk about on everyday conversations on race for everyday people with Simma Lieberman who loves hip-hop so that's awesome and is going to be educating me on things more than just Lauren Hill. So <laughs> that was a joke for those who have, in the mid-90s, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, a hip-hop record. Hi, now we're going to be listening. Now we're going to be listening to Jada Imani and Kaylee J. And an DJ. 
I've been building with honoring the feminine Cause masculine we swimming in a patriarch Soon a fall running to your paw paw Running down the dog off guard with the paws up uh, Pause, the nature do her thing If we keep interfering she may wipe us all away And everybody busy on and cranking the machine And wonder why so cyclically repeating history What you think? I think it's time to get bank for ourselves Own it or throw it away Currently, currencies losing value quickly The land to use and planning food that's where the rich be, how's that feel? How's that for real? When you can't kill, cause you need to rebuild. When you can't stay still on your knees, a refill of the handy pure pharmacy, a bleed drill. But a trip it is to fill the bliss of ignorance, deceits. Burst of a queen, I conquer misery. Repentancing from living in a den of ill conceived. So the moment that we meet, a reason that we breathe. Uh, when I compromise our sweet air to appease your blue vest. Cause we got the right to be here So we take our truth back All on my own In a ghost town that I once Hi everyone This is Simba the Inclusionist With Everyday Conversations on Race For Everyday People And you've just been listening to my next guest Jada Imani Hey Hey Jada <laughs> So Everyday Conversations on Race For Everyday People Where we bring people together from different backgrounds different races, different colors, to have comfortable conversations on race, to be able to eliminate fear of difference and bring people together. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid to do so because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, or you're afraid of not being heard or being ignored, then this podcast is for you. So today, I want to introduce my next guest, who I met recently at a benefit for uh, bringing hip-hop therapy to, to people who've been in trauma, who've been traumatized. Her name is Jada Imani. She's an MC and head of a homegrown project called Tattoo Vision from the Bay, by the way, of St. Oh, you're from St. Louis, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you're, oh, you're not, so you're not even from the Bay Area. Okay. I've been here for 10 years. I've been here since elementary school. So, okay, then you you're know. from here. <laughs> oh, I'm not from here. I've been here for over 35 years. I'm from the Bronx, but I'm still from the Bronx. Okay? <laughs> so this year, Jada released a concept video directed by Aroma called Drip, available on Tattoo Vision YouTube. And uh, I played it earlier. Don't miss it. You gotta, you gotta, t- you gotta look it up and listen to it. Jada began emceeing and curating ev- events at the age of 16. 16, y'all. When I was 16, never. Even, well, we didn't have these kind of events when I was 16. So since then, she's curated for Oakland Museum of California, Life is Living Festival, Kaiser Permanente, Aspen Ideas Festival, and more. And we're gonna hear more about her. She also leads workshops for public schools and special bookings. Jada hopes to use performance and healing arts to connect disparate populations to promote health, critical thinking, and self-love. And that is what Everyday Conversations on Race is all about. Yay. (laughs) So, Jada, people can't see you. Oh, first of all, let me just say, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much. Oh, okay. And let me just say this. I just started recording recently at Radio Mutiny. 
Uh, this is a cool spot. Yeah, it's a cool. It is a really cool spot. Yeah, shout out Also Collective. I've seen Equipto and Also Collective here too. Yeah, it's I good. just connected that. It's good. Yeah. So this is. So I'm I'm new with all the equipment. You know, you, you heard me record before. I had my own equipment. Now this is much more sophisticated. <laughs> so we may have a glitch or two, but that's okay. It's cool. So Jada, would you just um. Describe yourself since people can't really see you. Yeah. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm. Both of my parents are black and white, 50 50. So I'm a light skinned black girl. Um, I have caramel skin, uh, kind of petite features, kind of uh, full lips, but like a kind of a like pointy nose. It's like an interesting combination between black and white features. Uh, I present very hip hop. I think I kind of have like a street hip hop look, but I also like to mix it with a professional look so maybe you'll find me wearing some creased slacks with some adidas <laughs> you know what i mean but yeah um, right now i'm wearing i have braids but sometimes i have very thick nappy hair so sometimes i'm wearing an afro um yeah yeah they could, they could look and they could look you up which i'm sure people will do so today we have cross-race conversation and we also have the cross-generational conversation because as many of you know i am a baby boomer so, okay, we're, we're fixing the microphone right now. Okay, cool. All right, Jada, it was so great to meet you and to hear and to hear you perform. I was so impressed. So I said, well, I got to have this woman on my podcast. Thank you. You just like jumped out like a lion. I'm like, hey, I loved your enthusiasm and passion for this. Well, you know, this podcast is like my life. This is this is my dream for so many years. Mm. Now, if I was probably much younger and it was today, I probably would be able to do my podcast in one day. Say, hey, I want to get a podcast going on race. Okay, let's go, and it would be happening. But anyway, this is how it is, and it is how it is. Or what they used to say when I was growing up is, what it is is what it is, and what it was is what it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Jada, tell me, uh, why do you think it's important for people to talk about race across race? Why do I think so? Yeah. Um, I think it's important for people to talk about race all across the board. I'll start with that and then get to across race. Um, okay. I think that race is an important topic because we're all being influenced by it. Um, and uh, most of the times it's in a way that we haven't yet examined like we are not aware that we're being influenced but we are by the way that people look i really do think that there's been tons of exper experiments done that show how on a subconscious level we're all um you know motivated influenced by how we see people the, the color of people's skin and um the more that we examine that the more that we can um have the power to control that and not let that control us so we need to start thinking about race and being really honest about what we think about different races because we all have different prejudices and assumptions um and assumption yeah it's a lot better to examine them than leave them unexamined in terms of talking like cross race that's a really interesting thing being black and white i'm on like i have the two like polarities that are in this country that's like the longest lasting war almost is like um black and white like you can't get like a more opposite than that you know so it's really interesting thinking about bringing these two sides together um although i also kind of subscribe to the belief that it would be good to start within your racial group and talk to your folks first. And then once you're more healed and more clear within your community, then begin to talk to other groups. Um, and 
from myself being in the middle, like I'm in a very peculiar situation when, with the conversation about race. So hopefully I can be used by the greater force of good to um, yield like my interesting middle positioning to like help both sides. But I'm still figuring out my role there. But yeah, I think we all need to start talking about race and starting in our own homes and really starting um, to like, you know, really examine our own hidden beliefs. Yeah, and I like what you said about starting in our own home. Mm-hmm. I was at, I went to see a documentary which was amazing about the Oakland Interfaith Choir, mm-hmm. the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, and you know that's very multicultural, multiracial, multi everything, age, religion. You know they got Christians, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, all kinds of people in it, and a lot of people said, well. This is what America needs to look like. This is what it needs, you know, people hang together. I said, but you know what? This is what people's living rooms need to look like. Mm. I said, because it's not enough, you know, you just like go to an event, which is cool. I mean, everybody should go to events that are from different cultures. But if you don't really get to talk to people and then you want to be able to talk to people like everyday conversation, but I also like what you said about people need to first start talking amongst themselves, get healed, and then start talking. Now, one of the problems I see sometimes, um, and, and this is just my own experience, my own observation, is a lot of times like I'll see a lot of white people, and this is not to disparage anybody because I think anything anybody does to eliminate racism is important. But sometimes I'll see white people only talking to white people about mm-hmm. race. They go, well, first we only have to talk, you know, I got to talk to white people about race. But then what I don't see enough of is then branching out and reaching out. Mm-hmm. And you got to be able to branch out and reach out and know that maybe you're going to be uncomfortable. Maybe we can talk about something else. Simma Lieberman, the inclusionist here with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different backgrounds to have a cross-race conversation about race. If you've ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid of saying the wrong thing, or afraid of not being heard, then listen in. I'm so excited to introduce my guests today, who are two very close friends of mine, Juan Lopez and Sid Real. And Juan and Sid and myself and three other people are co-authors of a book called The Diversity Calling, Building Community One Story at a Time. So, Juan and then Sid, because people can't see you, I'm going to ask you to please share a little bit about yourself, who you are, a little bit about your background, okay? Okay. So let's start with you, Juan. Well, as you said, Juan Lopez. I grew up in Pittsburgh and Concord, California. I run a business called Amistad Associates. I have been involved in diversity, equity, inclusion, organizational change, uh, community organizing for a number of years. I... um, I guess I was blessed to be called into this work in about 1982 or so with uh, Dr. Price Cobbs. And it's a calling that's continued for me to discuss not only diversity, but all the dimensions uh, that come about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, we're all different in in different ways, everybody who wrote the book. So would you just share something about uh, your cultural background and maybe your age or your generation? You don't have to say exactly how old you are, just your generation. I have no problem sharing my age. I'm 63. (laughs) I identify as Chicano. I'm third generation Chicano in the Bay Area. Family moved to Pittsburgh in 1928. 
Um, I think probably the descriptor of me would be I'm about 5'8". I like to wear hats <laughs> and earrings. <laughs> and, uh, I'm in, um, and I'm passionate about all of this different work, both not only diversity, but uh, Chicano activism and spirituality. Okay. Now, Sid Real, tell us a little bit about you. And then we're going to talk about, then we're going to get to talking about race. So go ahead. Okay, I'm Sedalia, and I go by Sid Real. I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. I'm one of six children. My family originates from Northeast Texas and came to the Berkeley area in around 1943, I believe. My parents came away to, I mean, they came this way to work in the shipyards during the war. And the other fact about them, uh, we're an African-American family, and they were getting away from lynchings and other atrocities that were happening in Texas during the 40s. So my question now is, uh, we could start with you, Sid, and then, and then go back to Juan. Why is race, why is, talking, why, is, why is race and why is talking about race important to you? Talking about race is important to me because it's so much a part of my life. Growing up in Berkeley, which is known as a very uh, informal and uh, progressive town, also has had its issues with race, including redlining in neighborhoods and other situations where people of different races are kept apart, even though it's an international community. So I experienced some racism growing up, and it's always been a part of what's happening in my life. And then as an adult and going into college, I had an interest in education and training. And of course, part of what you experience there is what's happening with respect to how students of color are often treated differently and in many cases are treated as less than compared to their white counterparts. Well, Sid, would you uh, share one, you said you were exposed to racism when you were young or you were victimized by racism when you were young. Could you give us an example? Because a lot of people really don't understand what that means. I, I can think back to the third grade, being in a classroom, and our, our classroom was multiracial, but it just so happened that a new white family came in who came from either Mississippi or Alabama. They'd been a sharecropper family, lived down the street from me, and my third grade teacher had the audacity to pair me up with him for us to share a book. And um, he started calling me the N-word and pushing me and saying that he wanted his own book and that sort of thing. And when I went home crying and told my mother about it, she told all of us, get whatever you can, get a broom, get a mop, get anything. You're going to go down there and beat him up and make sure he doesn't do anything like that to you ever again. And so that was my rude awakening. Well, I find that very interesting that even at that young age, here's this kid coming in 
to your school or to your class or to your seat and telling you what he wants and calling you names. Not unlike what we've seen here in the Bay Area, even like in Oakland where we've had people come in to neighborhoods that were primarily black, where we've had people come in and start telling black people that they're singing too loud in the church. Singing too loud in the church, having the nerve to barbecue on the lake, all of these different examples of people in their white privilege not seeing that a person of color has just as much right to do and be anything that they want as anybody else. So, well, l- let me let me get to you, Juan. Uh, tell us, t- would you share a story with us about why race is important to you and why it's important that we talk about it? Growing up, Race was not always talked about directly, but there were many comments and inferences made that I was unclear about growing up um, from my uncles and my aunts. And, and my mother, I think, talked in ways that are very much, uh, we would describe as internalized depression. And she would make statements about uh, interacting with whites or how whites viewed Mexicans. And she always talked about it in a less than way. And she always suggested, which was, was a bit complicated because it was hard to read, that you had to be careful because you could be hurt, injured, um, or any number of things because of the way you look. And I think it, it hit me the strongest uh, after President Kennedy was assassinated And I remember coming home and walking into the front room and my father was home and he was watching the news and he was crying. And I was not accustomed to seeing my father cry. And and he he just kept saying as he was looking at the the news, saying, what's going to happen to Mexicans now? What's going to happen to Mexicans now? And, And I was trying to make sense of this, but essentially what they were talking about was, in fact, based on our uh, ethnicity, how we were being treated, how racism played out, how they experienced racism, and that it never seemed um, like you had the power, but you were always in a position where things or, or people could hurt you, but never talked about directly. Yeah. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, you're sharing stories of when you were younger, but we just had a black president, and are we post-racial? So does racism still exist? Do we still need to talk about race today? I think we need to talk about it now more than ever, because it's really prevalent throughout our experience here in the United States and around the world. I think that uh, people are still being made to feel less than, not having the same opportunities, being questioned about their credibility and their competence in ways that hadn't been happening for a little bit of a while, although I think it was always just a a myth or a hope or a dream that we were post-racial because we had a black president. If anything, some of the ways in which people responded intensified. In some conversations I've had with some of my white friends, they talked about knowing people who were white who woke up when 
Trump, when not when Trump got elected, but when Obama got elected and said they couldn't get out of bed because now a black man was the president of the country. Okay. Well, I, so, so did they stay in bed? I wonder, did they stay in bed until Trump got elected? They got out of bed maybe just to go vote? No telling what they decided <laughs> to do. <laughs> let, me, let me follow up on, on yeah, uh, Sid's response. I think it's pretty clear that we have a racist president. I think the comments that he makes about different people, different ethnic groups, and different religious groups, he makes it really clear um, who the others are. And I think when we look at what has happened on the border with kidnapping, um, what's happened with such brutal policies, says to me that the racism has, bec has become intensified. And you see examples of the protests, you, you hear about more white supremacist groups talking about um, strategizing on inflicting more racism. We see people in the community, in various communities, um, beating up on people of color. And we find a whole lot of mistrust in our communities of color towards police and other authorities. And much of that mistrust is based on how people view each other through the racial lens. So I think, I think now what we're talking about is even more intense. Um, and as Sid said, going from what people wanted to believe as being post-racial to now where we're seeing such obvious uh, expressions of racism is a real clear indication of the current state of where we're at. Well, let's talk for a minute about DICE. Now, I'm part of DICE with the two of you, and we have several other members. Would you uh, talk for a minute a little about, about DICE and what DICE is and about the book that people from DICE wrote? Yes, uh, DICE is uh, the acronym for Diversity Community Exchange. The nine authors of the book all met at a conference called Diversity 2000. It's actually a gathering of diversity and inclusion practitioners that comes together annually to commune with one another, learn from each other, and in some cases collaborate and work together. And one of the things that we decided to do was come together to write a book about our own personal journeys and experiences as a way to talk about our work as a calling. And the calling is how we can build community one story at a time. So by hearing about nine different ways people came to be in this work, what their life experiences are, gives people an idea of all of the ways that you can become a part of this diversity and inclusion community through the work that you're doing and doing it by sharing each other's histories, listening to one another, and finding ways that the work that we're doing can reach further out into other areas because we all work in different sort of um, sectors of the employment workforce. Now, some people would say that they've never seeing people be able to talk about race. 
Some people would say, oh, I'd like to talk about race, but I can't, and they don't want to talk to me about it, and blah, 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 blah. In writing this book, would you say that it really encouraged the conversation about race? And if any, somebody was going to read this book, uh, that you think that it would encourage people to talk about race? I think the book, as Sid said, is a, it's about nine people, um, Sid and I, Dr. Jojo McManus, um, Tommy Smith, Santa Linda Marrero, well, you, yeah, Simone yeah, Lieberman, um, and Sonny Massey, and uh, Dr. Marvin Smith, and Nadia Yunus. We all wrote this book, and unfortunately, I would say, um, well, it's unfortunate because two members of our um, group have passed on. And I don't think it's an accident that, that African-American men those are the two that passed on. Um, the impact of racism in their lives and how they shared their stories uh, has had a factor in their uh, longevity. And, and they talked about that and how growing up and dealing with that impacted them and how they saw the world. So I don't think our group was reluctant to talk about race, but we did it in the context of our stories. and. I believe all of us have a story, and central to that story is our experience, our identity, how we see ourselves in the world, and our race and our ethnicity is a part of that. And if you can't bring that into the conversation, then there's a central part of who you are in the world that's not being shared. And so we embraced that and felt like by us coming together and talking about our stories and what we experienced, that we were encouraging others to get together, to share their stories, maybe to write a book, and to talk more and deeply about these kinds of things that have helped shape who we are in the world. Well, what lessons did you learn from each other? I learned uh, to listen more carefully about the experiences people had, which included racism and sexism, and how it impacted people in terms of their insight, their awareness, their confidence, uh, their capacity to be um, human in the world. I, I, I learned uh, how to appreciate being with people who share such intimate information about each other. And, and these are sacred stories. And when you hear them and, and you approach it with that sense of sacredness, I think we learn more about each other and we learn how we can support each other more effectively. How about you, Sid? What, what are some lessons you learned? Well, I think first and foremost, the notion of hearing someone else's story requires that you're listening to what they're having to say to you and it's a real lesson in something that a lot of people just don't know how to do which is to suspend judgment about other people so when you have a notion about who somebody is based on how they look or where they come from and you don't know the story behind who they are as an individual you might make some assumptions about them that are incorrect 
and by hearing the full story and hearing it from people the way they want to share their story rather than you coming up with the questions about their different aspects of their lives but them just telling their own personal story it opens up the opportunity that there may be things that you have in common you might learn about what some of the differences are the different approaches people may have to dealing with the same kinds of situations and issues and so it really expands your way of being by having that connection with people based on their own personal story now you talked about you talked about assumptions that people might make about each other until they share their stories have either of you been in situations where you where you realized that you had made assumptions about another person based on how they looked or what you knew about them until you heard their stories that that you'd be able to share with us um, well, I can uh, think about one of our members who passed away, Marvin Smith, a very large, imposing African-American man who was a policeman, and he worked in Parchester Village, North Richmond. I have relatives there who knew him, and just the fact that he was so large and in charge and imposing and su had such a presence, it would make some people reluctant to engage with him. The Marvin I knew was the kindest, sweetest, so approachable kind of person, and you would never know that on the surface just by who he was uh, as somebody who was formerly in law enforcement and then was in the role of the EEO director and diversity manager at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. So he, he made a transition in his career, and I'm sure that he brought that same uh, larger-than-life presence into that kind of work as well. Uh, one, how about you? What assumptions did you, have you found that you've made and then said, oh, no, now that I know this person, so not, so not true? Everybody makes assumptions, but a lot of times people don't want to admit that they make assumptions because they think, oh, it's going to make me look bad. So it's very helpful to hear about times when other people admit that they've made assumptions and then that they've been wrong. I've made assumptions uh, about a lot of different people and, and their motivations and when I've looked at their body language, um, I might have thought to myself, uh, they have a certain belief system or a certain demeanor, uh, or they don't like me, or they do things and I don't like them. And then the narrative in my head just continues to grow in terms of why. And uh, I, I no longer, are, or I, I mean, I should probably say the narrative being that I make this assumption and then I build the story to support that assumption. As I've gotten older, I've worked real hard at, at not trying to put people in boxes because my experience has been that when you get to know somebody across race, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom that they share. And the more you can build an authentic relationship, the more you're able to communicate and share in that way. And assumptions prevent that from happening. So I've, I've done that a lot. And Could you share what, an example with us? 
Um, I, when I started um, graduate school, there were certain other graduate students that um, had a demeanor about them, some of the white folks. Uh, and I found that uh, I immediately put them into a, a, a category of being privileged or not knowing anything about my reality or my struggle or what goes on in, in our community. And um, I discovered that as I got to know them, they were very knowledgeable about race. They were very committed to dealing with um, ending racism. Um, they were outspoken and um, they became very good friends and allies. Um, and some of them even um, participated and, and helped support me in going after some big issues that we had as problems at the school with the dean who we thought wasn't really looking at bringing more faculty of color and that could speak to the service needs of our community in the Bay Area. Well, when we wrote this book, we had a lot of uh, discussions. What, what do you think, what were some of the challenges? Were there any, anything particularly challenging about us all writing the book together since we all came from such different backgrounds? I think just the very fact that we were from different backgrounds automatically made it a little more complicated to come together and decide how we were going to write this book. And so ultimately when we all decided to write our own personal stories, it meant that each person's story didn't have to look like the next person's story. You could just totally go out there and write about what you felt was important and significant to put into writing uh, about your own individual story. So it gave us a certain amount of freedom about what we were going to do. And I remember the many, many meetings and gatherings we had where we started sharing little kernels of what we would be writing about. And that's where the excitement started really coming in. We also knew Marvin, who was sort of spearheading the whole notion of writing our stories. I think a lot of it came from his own personal fascination about how different we all were uh, in terms of the work we were doing and our life experiences. And it was the excitement of telling our own story, which for me was the first time I really put it down on paper about some of the experiences I had. And then the joy of hearing about other people's stories. Uh, we just got really excited about getting the book published and showing to people and demonstrating how you can be coming from different places, but you can have the same purpose in life, the same intent about what you want to do and the work that you're doing, hence the diversity calling as part of the name of the book. How about you, Juan? What were some of the challenges, were there any challenges in bringing so many of us together from such big, different backgrounds? Well, I think as people share their stories, some of what happens is you're going through a process of, of remembering these stories, and sometimes there's trauma tied to those stories. And then you decide, do I really want to write about that? 
And, and what we found is that it, it forced us to begin to talk about some of these things that you may not have talked about or you tried to forget. So we created a, a, a bond where we became more open and sometimes stories change. What you thought you were gonna write about, what you ended up writing about it changed. Yeah, um, I did. And, and then sometimes you're reading it and you're asking for, for some real feedback about what you're talking about. And, and as I said, it's not always easy when you, you're trying to put words on paper about these experiences. You know, I've talked about my brother's suicide. Um, I talk about uh, being knifed. I talked about things that uh, were very personal, that were tied to race and internalized racism. And, and I tried to tie it together in a way that wasn't just a war story, but was about individual learning, sharing, um, and, and hearing from the co-authors uh, where they gave, we gave each other feedback about the stories and what should, you know, what we might want to do differently. But it was like building a family and having a lot of trust 